This episode of the Atlanta Foodcast is brought to you by Georgia Organics and the new Cast Iron and Collard Society. Georgia Organics has created the Cast Iron and Collard Society to make sure that Atlanta food enthusiasts know what's now and what's next in the good food movement on a daily basis. Cast Iron and Collard Society members will receive exclusive access to purchase tickets for private events and dinners. You'll get a constant stream of information on products and discounts and the opportunity to hang out with great Atlanta chefs and Georgia farmers. Everything kicks off this Sunday, November 11th at ASW Distillery for an exclusive conversation with Atlanta's own Chef Todd Richards. And it's all around his new cookbook, Soul. There'll be great bites prepared from his cookbook, specialty cocktails prepared by Mercedes O'Brien from Gun Show, and you'll get a free signed copy of his book. And tickets are on sale now for just $50, and there's only a few spaces still available. If you want to find out more on becoming a member of Cast Iron and Collard Society, or if you want to attend this event, click on the link on our episode page or head to georgiaorganics.com. Hello, friends. Welcome to the final episode of season one of the Atlanta Foodcast. And I'm actually sitting here at Krog Street Market at my favorite table, and my mind is just flooded with memories. And I've actually sat at this table and recorded many interviews during this season, uh, probably more than you can imagine. And it's been a wild ride, to say the least. You know, there have been many firsts and challenges and things that worked and things that frankly just didn't. And I never could have imagined that this show would grow into what it is. And we're ending season one here on episode 33. Uh, It's kind of a marked number that is truly a coming of age for the show. And I've decided to bring you guys a bit of a recap of the entirety of season one. And it's not a best of or anything like that, but it's just a taste of how many places and people have made up season one and have frankly just made things so wonderful and just an absolute blast. So I wanted to share a few of my thoughts with you as well, just in terms of dining in Atlanta, the business landscape of the culinary community here, and honestly, how you can help. And lastly, I want to give everyone a small preview of what is to come in season two. That's right. We're going to have a season two of the show, so don't worry. But I can't share too much just yet, but you'll be able to listen to the show in a few new ways and maybe even watch. But there's more to come later, friends, so don't worry. But let's get to the good stuff. We're going to listen to a few different interviews from this season with some commentary here and there. But first up, here's a clip from my conversation with Nick Leahy. He is a chef who has inspired me in many ways and has helped me appreciate Georgia product. So here's a clip from episode one. Hills really adds a lot to yeah. it. People are like, wow, there's hills there. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've known each other for a few years. Um, I've Since had the glory days of Yelp. Yes, yeah. indeed. Um, I've had the pleasure of dining in this restaurant um, a few times here. Um, so give us like the quick background. You know, like who you are. What you are you a Sagittarius? Like you know, whatever. Like just give us the quick background on Nick Leahy. Well, I'm an Aquarius. Oh, okay. Uh, right. You know, so I put around in my own mind and have a little ADD. But yeah, uh, I don't really yeah. know too much. Have like star signs. My wife there. says that's characteristic of an Aquarius. So. Okay. Good um, um, for all of you listening, now you know. <laughs> um, we've been open about four years. Uh, we do seasonal small plates. Um, 
try to be very local and driven and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's a giant box of really delicious looking mushrooms on the yeah. on the table up there. My buddy uh, Wit foraged those and called and was like, "Hey, do you want like nine pounds of chanterelles? I'll give you a really good deal." And I was like, <laughs> nice. "Yeah." Especially if you have a friend who's foraging mushrooms, like yeah. that's he's good. Pretty, pe- he's good people to know. Yeah, yeah. that's pretty awesome. <laughs> really, it's a it's a fun thing. I mean, um, but you know, like, I want to know like who cooked for you growing up and what kind of cook were they? Uh, I always give my mom credit for the reason that I'm a chef. Right. Um, she was a great cook. She would cook with me. You know, we had a little stool, and I'd be sitting there stirring pots with her and stuff when I was young. <laughs> nice. uh, but she was a very adventurous cook. You know, she mm-hmm. she grew up in the Middle East, um, so really? she had a Where? lot of. She lived in Lebanon and Beirut, and they oh, spent wow. some time in Iran. Uh, her dad was like a diplomat, so he oh, moved wow. around a lot. That's uh, really cool. Yeah, so she used sort of a. She had a lot of that like influence in her cooking, mm-hmm. and you know. She, uh, she grew up in Europe as well, and like you know, the whole family spread out in yeah. Europe. So she has a sister in Israel and yeah. a sister in France. Oh and man, that's in awesome. England and Scotland and stuff like yeah. that. So, so you, you didn't really have much of a choice except for having a pretty diverse palate as a, as a young. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of kind of forced upon me for sure. <laughs> yeah, no, that's yeah. great. Yeah, what was like a favorite meal? Like what what were you cooking on the, on the regular? Uh, one of my favorite. She always used to make this thing called majadro, which is like a lentil stew that's oh, got tons yeah. of spices and stuff in it. And, yeah. yeah, I always used to love that one. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. That's great. Um, so, I mean, I know that you've been all over. I mean, I know that you've, you've lived, like, you've lived overseas. You've, um, I know that you had a good stint in London. Um, yeah. So, I was, I was born in Bermuda. I okay. lived there until I was, like, seven. Then okay. went and lived in England for a couple of years. Awesome. Moved to Atlanta in, like, I think third grade. Uh, okay. It's a few years ago, so right. <laughs> memory fades. But, yeah. uh, just, just, a, just a few years ago. And then in, uh, in 2011. Nick's family history drives so much of his inspiration, and it's very evident. And he is actually now in the midst of opening his new restaurant, X, which is spelled A-I-X, over on the west side with the adjoining wine bar, Tintin. And I believe that's happening this month. So you may hear more from Nick uh, again pretty soon on the show. So, hey, Nick. Uh, but next up, here's a clip from brother-sister Fred and Stephanie Castellucci of Castellucci Hospitality Group. And their whole family is in the business, and I absolutely loved hearing about their childhood growing up in all of the restaurants. So here's a bit from episode eight. Yeah, a lot of it was really out of necessity. Mm-hmm. So as we, you know, when we first moved here to Atlanta, um, we opened a restaurant in a shopping center in Alpharetta. Mm-hmm. Um, and Fred was essentially the main line cook. My dad would do all the prep. Um, and then I would help out on the, um, mm-hmm. least technically difficult station, mm-hmm. gar- garmache. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so it was really out of necessity. Like we couldn't afford to hire people. So we just worked the stations ourselves. And, mm-hmm. um, that's really where we learned to cook. I know Fred had a few like apprentices at a young age, apprentices, mm-hmm. um, where he'd work in bakeries and, um, places throughout Rhode Island. Uh, but we moved here. Our first experience was at our original restaurant, the roasted garlic, um, which was in Alpharetta in this really shitty shopping center. <laughs> what like, year, what year was that? It was 98, 97, 97. Wow. Yeah. So since, since closed. Yes. Yeah. So we had a partnership with another group, oh, with okay. another family. Gotcha. Um, and then broke away from that to start Sugo, um, on our own. 2003 ish, right? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I just, I love, I love that, you know, like I love that that's uh, just again, like such a huge part of, um, you know, of, of how you guys actually grew up in the restaurant world. So um, man, that's really great. Um, well, switching gears a little bit and speaking of, you know, of, of Sugo. So what, um, 
I, I guess, like, talk me through, like, what was that like for you guys as a family? You know, because, I mean, again, like, I, I speak with so many people about, you know, like, the, the harrowing tales of, like, opening a restaurant and, like, you set a date and then it gets pushed, like, three months and, like, but, you know, being a part of that, like, with it being your whole family. Yeah. Uh, what was that like back in 2003? Man, um, well, so, you know, my dad has, has kind of always been a restaurant, tr- restaurant entrepreneur. I don't know what, what the exact title for that is, uh-huh. but you know, um, his, his father before him had a bar restaurant. Mm-hmm. Uh, his great grandparents had a, had a restaurant as well. Um, but you know, when he moved, he moved us all to Atlanta after, um, he, he lost everything with his restaurants in Rhode Island mm. and moved us down, uh, to Atlanta or Duluth, Georgia, actually, because mm-hmm. he picked it out of a Forbes magazine as the fast, one of the fastest growing cities in the country. No way. Like that's how we came to Atlanta because my dad saw Duluth, Georgia in a Forbes magazine um, <laughs> and, and decided like, this is what we're doing. I mean, just imagine the, uh, the balls that it takes to like, yeah. just take your family of five with a dog and a cat and a Volvo station wagon and just say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to head a thousand miles South um, like- and just see what happens Um, man i absolutely love these two and i've actually since dined at bar mercado and recess more times than i can count and i really can't wait for their new location of the iberian pig to open pretty soon love you guys so next up is drew mcbath from episode 10 and he founded banner butter with his wife and their process is astoundingly fascinating to me so here's a bit from drew talking about making butter because yeah. I can see and taste once I have the opportunity to, to compare the two. All right. So tell me a little bit about the banner butter process because I know, I mean, is it, I don't know if it's just saying like cultured butter, but, you know, d- describe like the actual product and the process. It is actual cultured butter. It's a fermentation, like kind of like a cheese. You know, we oh, sour right. cream over about 36 hours. So you oh, had to wow. mix of bacteria to the, to the cream. Mm-hmm. Um, it sours, it ferments, um, another way to put it, <clears throat> over a um, long period of time, and uh, and it becomes thick, and all these wonderful flavor compounds start to come out of, yeah. of the, the cream at that point. Yeah. Um, so it starts as sweet cream. We use 40% cream or 36% cream, which is basically mm-hmm. the butterfat percentage. Yeah. Um, and then we go through that fermentation process. Um, it becomes... Once it becomes creme fraiche, which mm-hmm. is basically heavy sour cream, creme fraiche is amazing. It is. I love creme fraiche, uh, yes. particularly when it's fermented over a long period of time. So um, you can get more acidity, more flavor yeah. by taking the time to you know f- ferment it. Right. Um, and so we we do that slow culturing process, and then um, and you know there's a hundred gallon. 110 gallon increments and then we pump it into a big butter churn like you might see in a book or something like yeah, a big wh- wh- rotational butter right churn. which i saw when i walked in and i mean it's it's pretty awesome I mean, it's it's <laughs> it's uh it's it's a large piece of equipment and um so i i, I think you're you're painting the picture really well but i mean it's <laughs> it's a pretty stunning piece of kitchen equipment to yes. look at i mean it's it definitely is like whoa yeah it's like that's different yeah it looks like a simulator or something yeah. i mean it's just it's <laughs> massive so but yeah i mean it, it, you guys are making a ton of butter at one time yeah just to describe it it's um 
a big, uh, I guess, capsule-looking thing yeah. um, that rotates on two axles on each side, or, or single axle mm-hmm. uh, that's connected on both sides. So it's kind of like rotating around, and it's got a big door on one side, and so that rotation smashes the creme fraiche, all the molecules together. And it's it over time has to be at the right temperature. You have to chill it to get yeah. to the right temperature. Because you do if you if you turn the butter at too hot, you can do this at home. If you turn the butter, if you churn cream at a higher temperature, it's going to give you a really wet, crumbly butter. Yeah. So you have to chill the cream a little bit, right? Too much um, to get to the right temperature for your right. churn. And it rotates and it smashes all those molecules together, and it separates. So you get buttermilk, and then you get you know, once that collision, that kinetic energy mm-hmm. happens, um, you get butter on one side and buttermilk on the other side. So right. it's it's, uh, it's breaking. The, yeah. the butter is breaking into right. its respective. Man, I love Drew's story. And especially I love Banner Butter. So go buy good butter, friends, and you and your loved ones will thank you for it. So, hey, Drew. But uh, it's not always all business here on the show, and we get down to plenty of the goofy side as well. And, you know, as I was covering Kevin and Megan Utz's story of the Spotted Trotter, we also had plenty of really good laughs. So here's a bit from part one of episode 13 with them. Kevin, same question goes to you. I just discovered why Ben's here. He's pitching his new casserole restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> it's crowd, um, crowdfunding. It's, it's called Casseroles with a Z. Um <laughs> It's uh, it's gonna be in downtown Atlanta. No, I'm just kidding. God, people are gonna think that I'm serious. Casseroles, oh, yeah, yeah. by Ben. Casseroles, but it's R O L L Z. There you so go. It's casseroles, but everything comes in a wrap. Right. And we Sweet. stop. People, someone's gonna be thinking like, we're going there. Like they stole my idea. <clears throat> your tagline, your tagline should be, "This is how we roll." Oh God. <laughs> you can use that. Yeah. Casserole. Done. This is how we casserole. Oh gosh. <laughs> We really need to stop. Killing me. Um, Kevin, who cooked casserole for you? <laughs> Casseroles were primarily cooked by grandma in my house. Okay. Um, not not to say, I mean, we had a lot of good casseroles, but my upbringing, I had a lot of fantastic inspiration cooking. and I. Um, Man, Kevin and Megan are just such dear friends of mine, and I am so excited for them. Uh, they actually announced a little earlier that they're getting ready to move their operation just off of Memorial and Moreland to a much larger space. And also, their family is growing as well, so that is super exciting for those two. Love you, Kevin and Megan. But next up is a clip from episode 17 with Steven Satterfield, a major hero of mine. And his career is one that I've loved learning about over the years, and especially since it wasn't always the kitchen calling him. At first, it was music. So here's more from chef Steven Satterfield um, of Miller Union. I took some time off from playing music, and it was when I was in college. And during that time, I was listening to a lot of music and kind of discovering a lot of things as a lot of college students do. Um, <laughs> And I just, I really, um, you know, found myself listening to a lot of alternative stuff. And um, I was also big into like the new wave stuff in the 80s. And so I, after I graduated, I picked up a guitar for the first time and taught myself how to play and found a friend who uh, was also playing guitar a little bit. And then we found a drummer and found a bass player. And we were just doing it for fun. And we recorded some songs and sent them to a few labels um, on cassette tape. Nice. And because that's what we had at the time to record with. 
Um, and we ended up getting interest from a label in the UK called Two Pure. Um, they were the same label that launched uh, Stereo Lab and PJ Harvey and several other bands, um, some of them much more obscure. But we were we ended up signing with them. We were the first American band to sign to Two Pure, which um, so it was funny because we were an American American musicians that were licensed back to the states through a UK label. Wow. Um, so we we sort of made international headlines on an indie scale, and we were literally plucked out of obscurity and immediately on college radio. So it was a really exciting time. And um, we ended up cutting four records in five years. Wow. And got to tour all over the U.S. and played in New York City a lot and a lot of regional shows in the Southeast. So it was great. It was a great time in in our lives where we were being creative and and being semi-successful at it. Were we successful, like, paying our bills with it? No. Um, <laughs> that's why I started working in restaurants. Gotcha. Yeah, and, you know, when I, um, my wife and I moved to Atlanta in the summer of 2013, and, you know, I, uh, just, just through, you know, the industry, like, got to know some people, and, you know, they just giving us recommendations of where to eat, and, like, one restaurant you guys really need to go to is Stephen Satterfield's restaurant, Miller Union, and they were also just giving me a little bit of your background, They're like, something that you're really going to love is, and they just, like, laid out your whole history of, like, you know, being in a band, and touring, and, like, cutting records, and, like, there was a huge part of me that really wanted to work in the industry like before iTunes and I was like I'm gonna work in A&R and I'm gonna be like the coolest guy and yeah so it was uh it was just really cool to like know that about you and also seeing you know the your your menu and actually the restaurant and like so having that knowledge of of your of just of your background is just really really cool so I just think that's an awesome part of your story yeah it's definitely an interesting chapter in my life and um prior to that I was at Georgia Tech and studied architecture. After sitting with Chef Steven and hearing about his life and passion for sustainable food and his approach to running a kitchen, I am just left so inspired by his creativity. And I cannot wait to visit Miller Union again, which is actually celebrating nine years in business this month. So congratulations and thanks again, Chef. But next, I had a chance to sit with Judith Winfrey of Peach Dish. And her story has gone from working in restaurants to owning a farm. And now she finds herself at the helm of a meal company. So here's a clip from episode 19. I know a lot of your story, but mm-hmm. you know, so give us a little bit of an idea. So you're growing up here in Atlanta, mm-hmm. you know, where does food make its way into Judith's life? Well, you know, mom, as I said, my mom was a caterer and, um, my parents actually ran the cafeteria at the small private school, uh, that I went to for elementary school. So, I mean, in a sense, food has always been a part of my background, but professionally, I didn't start working in food until I was almost 30 years old. Um, I think this happens a lot in families, maybe you know, in families who have um, parents who work in culinary in some way sort of discourage their kids because they're like, it's, it's really hard work. I'd prefer that you go sit at a desk somewhere and make the easy money. Um, so I didn't work in restaurants until I was almost 30 and I went to work at an awesome place in Decatur called the Brickstore Pub. Yeah. Uh, we could do another show just on how awesome Brickstore is. We could. Yeah. And all the awesome people that have come through the Brickstore Pub. I mean, it's really incredible. 
Um, so I worked there. I actually met uh, the man who is now my husband there. We worked together. Um, and it was a great, it was a fun time. It was a liberating time. I was like, wait, restaurant work is so fun. How come I've been avoiding this for so long? Um, but th from there, I went to work at an awesome restaurant indicator called uh, Watershed. And I worked with Chef Scott Peacock and Stephen Satterfield, who was his sous, and Billy Allen, who was his sous. Man. Yeah, it was a really, I didn't realize what a special time it was at that restaurant until years later, obviously, but it was. Judith is someone I truly admire and how she and the team at Peach Dish have paved the way for growers and chefs alike to help the curious person at home unlock the potential of really good ingredients and especially great recipes. So keep it up, Judith. But next, I wanted to play a clip from episode 20 with Chef Jen Hill Booker. Her story and the number of titles that she has held, and also the books that she has authored, makes for an incredible story to hear. So here's Chef Jen talking about her career from the start. Booty people, I was like, oh my God, why didn't you go to Portland? And like, it wasn't that Portland then, okay? It was just like woods and wet and mushrooms, I think. You know? <laughs> so we ended up in Tulsa um, between my my junior and senior year of high school so it was pretty traumatic and uh, so I went my last year of high school there and then my mom took my sisters and I to see the school so my middle sister and I are um, three years apart so we were in the same high school and I remember bursting into tears because it was like this brick box on this dead piece of grass and I was like this is not what I'm used to and not what I want you know but I uh, graduate there and uh, end up going to University of Tulsa and got my undergrad and started culinary school the fall after I graduated from college. Wow. Yeah. Man, so what were you so excited about to go to culinary school for? Um, just always wanted to be a chef. And I thought, well, this is what I want to do. And grew up watching uh, Julia Child like everyone else. And our family, you know, big into gardening and raised animals and chickens and butter and food. And it just seemed like the happy time. And my parents were totally against it. Totally against it. Wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So uh, my father finally, because I was relentless, and we made he made a deal. And he said, if you go to college and get a degree, graduate, I don't care what you do after that. And so in my mind, that stuck. And I'm like, I have to graduate, and then I'll go to culinary school. And so that's what I was able to do. Gotcha. Yeah. And where was culinary school? Um, I was able to go to Oklahoma State University, um, what is now called Oklahoma State University Institute of Technology. That's a lot of syllables. Yes. Back then it was Oklahoma State University Okmulgee because that was the town. Chef Jen Hill Booker like is doing so much in the way of educating the masses on cooking at home and especially in the way of knowing more about reducing food waste. We love you for everything that you do, Chef Jen. Keep it up. Next, Chef Todd Richards has made a major impact on the dining scene here in Atlanta. His skill and expertise has opened up multiple restaurants that are still going strong today, and there's even more to come on the horizon. And we caught up over the summer to talk about his new cookbook, Soul. And I loved what he had to say about culture. So here's a clip from our conversation. Well, you, you, I look at it in a sense that there's a mythical, strong debate of soul food versus southern food, which are really the same in it. Um, you get into the hues of and shades of color of people when you have that debate. But no one says, well, what about northern food? Well, there's no term northern food in our country. 
when you get into what's considered or maybe considered northern food, you get into the ethnic values of the people. You know, you have Jewish community, you have Greek community, you have, you know, French community, French American community, even Caribbean and all those things. It's only in the South that we have these debates of black and white. And that, it, to me, is that involuntary collision of, uh, and, and mashing of, of cultures that really what divides us is how much money you have to either high off the hog or, or low on the hog. That makes it involuntary because the circumstances that you were born into may not always derive the outcome that you can have if you apply yourself to making your lives better. And that's what's important uh, to me in the book is stating that. Chef Todd Richards continues to show Atlanta just how wonderful true soul food and soulful cooking can be. Pick up a copy of his book if you haven't already and get to cooking. Go get him, chef. Now next and lastly, I wanted to play this clip with Jarrett Steber. He has created an incredible concept through hosting a pop-up restaurant called Eat Me, Speak Me over the past several years, and his menus are dynamic, and he has a deep history of working throughout restaurants here in Atlanta. So here's a bit from episode 29 with Chef Jarrett Steber. And it was sort of like a you know, kind of tradition. My sister and I would go with him. He'd make rounds. We would prank people in the hospital like we probably shouldn't have been doing, but... <laughs> You know, just like the doctor's kids running around messing with the nurses and we would take, you know, my dad's name, write it on the whiteboard with all the patients laps and stuff for the charts and we'd be like, Dr. Steber barely made two laps today. And, you know, we were just a terror. But um, then we'd go to Alon's afterwards and we would get, you know, croissants and whatever. Yeah. So I I went up and asked Alon if I could shadow their chef and... He kind of knew us from coming in a lot, and it's like, yeah, you know, why not? So, started following around the chef, who at the time I think it was Robert Phelan, who's now like wow. one-eared stag yeah. and all that stuff. Probably doesn't even remember me. I was 15. He was there for a couple <laughs> weeks, and then somebody else with the chef. Um, but yeah, I just went and prepped food, um, you know, two days a week on the weekends, and learned how to do bigger batching of stuff, and that was pretty much pretty much it they just kept putting me on the schedule and kept putting me on the schedule and at the end of the summer Alon gave me some cash and was like thanks for all the help this summer uh you want to keep working once school starts I was like yeah sure <laughs> and once i turned 16 filled out the paperwork and that was pretty much it oh man so yeah. are you baking as well at Alon's? no i wasn't doing baking we we're just doing like that prepared food yeah. kind of to go section yeah that's such um, a huge but the baking part. was incredible there oh yeah i mean i was gonna say being like, around the pastry was awesome and there's so many aspects to that business i mean it, whether you go to morningside or dunwoody i mean yeah. there's it's just such an operation and you yeah. can see everything happening too that was that's something i liked about it. and i've always liked open kitchens ever since then because of that that's my probably my biggest grievance about being here at sos now is not having the open kitchen i really miss that yeah um yeah it was great i mean it used to be like yeah i know how to cook a piece of chicken pretty well as a you know 15 year old who thinks you know everything (laughs) but do you know how to you know grill off a couple cases at a time for the display case and have them all be good and just learning how to do kind of bigger batches of stuff it's I don't really like volume now. It's not my style to be in high volume places, um, but it was cool to learn how to knock out volume prep at a really early age, and that's yeah. you know been a valuable tool since. If you dig cocktails and you're looking for an adventurous menu, make sure that you head over to the SOS Tiki Bar Indicator and pay a visit to Eat Me, Speak Me. You will not be disappointed. Thanks again for being on the show, Chef.
And you know, there were so many wonderful conversations. And I just want to say thank you to all of our guests who are a part of season one. I just want to say thank you for sharing your story, your company's history, your menus, your inspiration, tales of trial and family, and how you are making Atlanta such an amazing city for eaters. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I love you. So, shifting gears to the end here, I wanted to end with a few thoughts on the culinary community here in Atlanta. And I have seen so much happen over the past six years in this city. And restaurants and brands that have started their journey here, businesses that have opened and closed, and development that has hit so many areas of the city that are in such desperate need of the light of good community. And the only thing that I wanted to leave everyone with here is that our city at the present is an interesting opportunity for many. And it's the ability to try. There is so much available throughout Atlanta where there is latitude to exercise an idea or concept and it's just available. And Atlanta offers such wonderful diversity and it shows that there is an array of cuisine and creativity throughout every pocket of our city. And there's room to explore ideas here and I love that there's ground to see if something has legs. So from the chefs, business owners and entrepreneurs that I have had as a part of this show to the people that I've met and befriended over the years, I am inspired by all of you and my advice and message is to never stop trying new things. And so this brings us to the end of the episode, but a few things to look forward to in season two. There'll be a handful of breweries, a few more coffee concepts, some farms and farmers, even more barbecue, new restaurants, old restaurants, restaurant designers, historical Atlanta figures, a few friends of the podcast from season one, and plenty of surprises throughout. So I wanted to tease just a little bit of the content that we've already recorded and I cannot wait to share with you guys. And oh, you'll also be able to see our first video series that is coming your way in the spring. So I don't want to divulge too much of the detail just yet, but I'm really excited to roll out some new content for you guys to to check out for the Atlanta Foodcast. And lastly, we're going to announce something in January, and I don't want to give too much detail just yet, but there's going to be a way that you can get a little bit more involved with the show, like almost have a little bit of skin in the game. And there's a way that you're going to be able to support what we're doing and a few other things, but there's more to come. So you'll just have to wait until after the holidays. So the only thing that I have left to do is to say thank you to you, our listeners, our community. Thank you for making season one so much fun. Thank you for listening, for downloading, streaming, putting our stickers on your laptops and for following us on Instagram. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. And if you'd like to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or subscribe or wherever you listen to your podcast, we would love you eternally for it. The Atlanta Foodcast is produced right here in Atlanta by me, your host, Benjamin Getz. And our design is headed by my lovely wife, JJ Getz, and photography is done by me. Hello again. But until next season, we're looking forward to bringing you more stories from local chefs, culinary entrepreneurs, and people who are making Atlanta the greatest city for eaters. Happy holidays, friends. We'll see you in season two of the Atlanta Foodcast.